Well, I hope you're in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. I want you to put your thumb there. I want you to hold it there for a minute. We're starting a new series here on Sunday mornings that's going to take us until Christmas to complete. And the title of the series is called, Follow Me, The Call of a Christian. The words themselves, follow me, are very common, ordinary words. But when they proceed from the mouth of an extraordinary individual, and they are offered to ordinary individuals like you and I, these two simple words in the breath of Christianity become some of the most profound statements that we have in the Bible. Christianity is an invitation that is initiated towards us by God. As one person wrote, Christianity does not begin with our pursuit of Christ, but with Christ's pursuit of us. Christianity does not start with an invitation we offer to Jesus, but with an invitation Jesus offers to us. And within these two words, we find that individuals at the time of Jesus Christ responded to that invitation. And those individuals turned the world upside down, in and through the power of the one who invited them. Follow me, the call of the Christian. These individuals who followed Jesus were called disciples. And disciple simply means one who is a follower of someone else. And they would imitate the one in whom they are following. They would do what he says and did what he did. And they would learn from him as they walked with him. God is calling us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And that discipleship begins within those two simple words. Follow me. But there is a cost that many Christians have not considered before accepting that invitation. I get very nervous when I hear gospel presentations telling people, just come to Jesus, it's not going to cost you anything. It certainly is a free gift, but that free gift is going to cost you everything. And why do I say that? Many of the gospel presentations, and that is the initial presentation of the gospel where someone then is uh, considering, should they respond, should they reject? It's within that initial presentation that so many misunderstandings are created concerning Christianity. And if the gospel isn't proclaimed accurately, people who are listening to it, people who are responding to it, are going to be drawing false conclusions based upon that false presentation. That's why we took three months on Wednesday evenings to go through the gospel. What is it and what to do with it? It's the most profound, powerful statement that has ever been made and created here on this earth. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the message that none of us should ever be ashamed of. But as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, and as Jesus continued his earthly ministry those three years, 
And individuals sought after him, swarmed after him, followed him from place to place to place. He finally comes to a point, midway through his earthly ministry, that he needed to address the crowd. He needed to ask them a very serious question about their understanding of what it meant to follow after him. Because none of them truly knew what he was about to do next. None of them thought that he was going to be captured and then arrested and then he was going to be tortured and executed. They saw the beginnings of the kingdom of God. They saw the new David that was about to take the throne and free them from their Roman oppressions. So as he is walking with these people and the crowds are gathering and the crowds are swarming, he turns to the people. And he asks them to consider exactly what they are doing. And many Christians find themselves in a quandary today because they've never truly asked themselves the question and what it means to follow after Christ. They've never considered the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And as a result... They find themselves lost in this relationship that they thought that they were entering into based upon a gospel presentation that may have been faulty in the sense that it may have been complete. I want you to read with me as we look at Luke's gospel together. At one of these moments where Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks people to consider the cost of following him. And I want to ask yourself that as we are reading this, ask yourself, have you ever considered this? Have you ever considered what it costs to follow Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, it's something that you need to do up front. To understand everything that we are going to look at going forward, you have to know up front the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And once we understand that, and once we grasp that, and once we know what we are getting ourselves into, the expectations are properly created. And therefore, we are not moved so easily by the difficulties that we find ourselves experiencing here in this world. Let's read these words together. We start in verse 25 of Luke's Gospel. Now great crowds accompanied him, And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I've been pastoring now for almost 20 years. I love going on the internet and seeing what churches are doing around us. See if there's any good stuff we can steal. You know, why reinvent the wheel? (laughs) You know. I've never seen anyone introduce a series saying, we're going to learn how to hate everyone compared to Christ. But think of what he is saying here. Is he using this word hatred as despising those others? No, he's using it in comparison to the love that we need to have for him. God is asking us to love him purely. With priority. He's asking us to put him in the place of preeminence in our lives. That's what he's asking us. And our, everything else should pale in comparison. God first. God first. 
The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where it all begins. And he's asking people to consider this. Family relations were huge in the Jewish culture. Families' expectations upon their children were enormous. And for someone to tell mom or dad that they weren't going into the family business was a huge slap in the parent's face. It was a sign of great disrespect. And Jesus is saying, you've got to love me before all others. Now, does the Bible tell us that we should hate our wives, hate our husbands, hate our... Of course not. We are to love them unconditionally. But he's using this as a comparison, a contrast. Have you put Christ in such a place in your life? Notice these last five words. He or she cannot be my disciple. How how do you read that? This doesn't sound optional to me, does it? It sounds mandated. But he goes on. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count its the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus is saying very clearly in in words and, and in a manner that they would fully understand, let us consider what we're going to do before we do it, and let us count the cost of it to know that we are able to finish it. That's what he's saying here. Now, I don't know how you read these words. Is he just being idealistic here? Is this just some standard that he is raising for certain people, but really not everyone is needed to uh, reach this level or uh, go this far because this is so radical in comparison to what I've been accustomed to? Or is he basically laying down a precedent for all of us to consider? Verse 30, I'm sorry, 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Right there, we could say amen for the morning and have enough to chew on and to consider. But this is what Christ set as the standard. The count of the cost of discipleship. One defines discipleship as this. It is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from, and to become more like them. For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Discipleship not only involves the process of becoming a disciple, but the making of disciples through the teaching and evangelism. 
One wrote this about the two words, follow me. They stated, follow me means constant or consistent discipleship and steadfast pursuit of Christ, even if that requires you to lay down your life in martyrdom. It means continuing Christ's work in the way he wants it done, not in the way we want it done. We're setting the standard. We're bringing Christ now to a place in our personal life of preeminence. And this might sound radical to some of you. This may be something you've never heard before. But yet it is what Christ is saying he desires. And he requires of us who will follow him. The counting the cost of discipleship. Now I had mentioned that I like going on other churches' websites to see what they're doing. And I have discovered that many churches are now answering two questions that seem to become uh, very prominent over the last five years concerning the relationship between the individual and Christ. And those questions are as follows. Number one, what does it mean to be a Christian? I challenge you to watch and to see for yourself how many churches are trying to answer that question for people. What does it mean to be a Christian? And secondly, what is the will of God for my life or the call of God upon my life? Now, I believe that much of the confusion that we find ourselves in today is a direct result of the fact that we didn't consider things up front and look at things objectively and honestly before entering into this relationship with Jesus Christ. This was not a concern of those early followers of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter did not write his first letter saying, I address this to the body of Christ, and the theme is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Right? You don't see it presented that way. They knew what being a Christian meant because they saw it in the person of Jesus Christ. They saw his life for those three years. They saw what he did on a daily basis. When it came to the will of God or the call of God, there didn't seem to be much ambiguity in the early believers' followers, the early followers of Jesus Christ, because they heard it and they saw it and they knew it for themselves. They knew that they were to follow him, they were to imitate him in all that he said and did, and they could do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was that simple. They knew they were going to be hated, they knew they were going to be persecuted, they knew that it would even cost some of them their lives, and yet they were still willing to do it. See, if we approach people with the gospel in a manner of trying to sell Jesus to people, and we try to market Jesus to people, and we try to make Jesus attractive to people so they respond positively to him, we then inadvertently create a false expectation and a false understanding of what the gospel truly is. And today, when I hear the gospel presented, often the issue of sin is so uh, lightly dealt with and skated over that many people don't understand that the beginning of this new relationship is repentance. Secondly, when the action of, you know, the event of the cross takes place, how loosely it is defined and how people don't understand what is transpiring at that moment. 
And even when we say something like this, and we mean all the good intent in the world, that God has a beautiful plan and purpose for your life, but it may require you to die for your faith or be in prison for the rest of your life. We sell it in a way that is often incomplete here in this nation because we want to appeal to people's flesh rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work in them by simply presenting the gospel in its integrity, allowing God to do the work in their hearts, opening their eyes to the truth, and allowing Him to bring them to repentance and then placing their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. In those gospel presentations, a right expectation is placed. But America, this wonderful nation in which all of us live, and I know we're all thankful to live here in America, I am. We have a tendency to Americanize everything, don't we? I mean, we do a great job at Americanizing everything. And one of the things we have done a great job creating the American version of is Christianity. And when I read through the gospel simply, and when I read through the book of Acts, it often doesn't coexist well with the idea that many have today of Christianity. Before we can understand these words of follow me, we have to understand the call upon our lives that Jesus is requiring. And over the next several weeks, we are going to be looking at different statements throughout the Gospels where Jesus said, follow me. And then he defines those statements by giving very specific examples to individuals across the the Gospel uh, accounts to allow us to know and to understand what he is meaning and what he is requiring of each of those individuals. When Jesus broke out onto the scene, The very first word out of Jesus' mouth after being baptized, going into the wilderness and being tempted like he was, and then coming out and beginning his earthly ministry was the word repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4.17 This sets the stage for everything that follows. Before you and I can consider following him, and heeding the invitation that's being offered to us, we have to first ask ourselves what direction that we are going in. Are we going in the direction that God would have us to go, or are we going in some other direction? Repent simply means uh, to turn. It means to do a 180. But here he is specifically saying it to the people at that time who often thought that they were right where they needed to be with God, but often were not. They thought for sure that just being Jewish in and of of itself was sufficient. They didn't need to do anything more. But when Jesus came and proclaimed, repent, it caused a moment of pause within their lives and in their hearts to consider what direction that they are going. I am very concerned that we are discovering that many who claim Christianity have not been born again, have not been regenerated. You know, just because I stand in a garage, it doesn't make me a car, right? Just because an individual goes to church, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. There has to be evidence. There has to be fruit 
of that new birth. And sometimes it's very small. Sometimes it's incredibly noticeable. But there has to be a change in a person's life. I get very concerned when someone tells me, yes, I prayed a prayer at one time, but from their lives they do not demonstrate any desire of the things of God. They have no desire to go to church. They have no desire to interact with the people of God. They have no desire to get into the Word of God. They have no desire to get on their knees and pray. They're indifferent to the things of God, and I have to question, I have to ask, do they really know God? Have they really been born again? Has regeneration actually taken place within their lives? Because all of us may think that we are going in a certain direction, but it takes a statement like this from Jesus to ask ourselves a serious question. Do I really know Him? And why do I ask that question? Because there are some in Matthew 7 verse 21 who will stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Scary to think you're on the right road, you're going the right way, and only to discover at the end of it all that you never were known by Christ and you, he never knew you, you never knew him. That's a scary reality, it's a scary thought. But the individuals that we see that are confronted by this reality were individuals that took a moment to consider what direction that I am, I am going in in my personal life. Now for those who don't know the Lord, they're going after the world. And the road is broad, and many travel it, but in the end it's destruction. I think I read that somewhere. But the way of Christianity is a narrow way, and few find it. And it's very difficult, step by step. But in the end, it is everlasting life. But there are many Christians today, and this is the group that I am concerned with. There are many Christians today who have made Christianity a simple supplement to their daily lives. You know, I love Jesus because he's going to help me obtain everything that I personally want to obtain. And so he's my Jesus supplement. And when I need a little bit of Jesus in my life to help me accomplish what I want to accomplish, then I call upon him. I take him off the shelf. I find a verse of the Bible that would seem to speak to me. And they have what I call fortune cookie devotions. And that is that they flip through the Bible, they pick out a verse and they read it, and they automatically apply it to themselves. And when they don't get a verse that they don't like, they go in for another cookie. Repent, cleanse your hands, you filthy sinner. No, that must be for him. And they do it again. And today we have churches that are honestly enough saying now that it's all about you, right? Your best life now. God is here to help you obtain your goals, your desires, your wants. He is here to make all of your dreams come true. Where do you think Disney got it from? Think about that idea of Christianity and then tell me that's biblical. For some, somehow, some way, they must not have read the same passages that I have read where it says not only does Jesus become my Savior, but He is now my Lord. And those who interacted with Jesus and those who wrote, the apostles who wrote and ministered to the church there in the early beginnings of the church, they wrote under the guise of the word doulos, 
Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Peter, a doulos of Jesus Christ. The Greek word that is most accurately translated slave today. Again, we must consider these things before we can obtain or respond to the follow me invitations. First question that I anticipate. But isn't believing in Jesus the same thing as following him? Well, we have examples in the Bible of ones who believe but did not follow and ones who follows but did not believe. You can't have one without the other to be perfect in its completion, but we have examples of both apart from one another. In John 6 specifically, the hordes of people following Jesus, Jesus once again turns around to thin out the crowd. And he indicts the people for following him for the wrong reasons. They followed him because of the miracle of the food. They followed him because of the wonderful signs and miracles that he was performing on those who were diseased. But they really didn't have a heart for him. They were just simply there for the bread and circuses. But then you have others, and we find this uh, now as the New Testament continues, who say that they believed in Jesus but there was no evidence from their life and the way they conducted their lives. And this is what James was addressing. James in the second chapter, which has become very controversial in Christianity because it appears to support salvation by works. But that's not what James is saying at all. No one is saved by their works. No one is. It's by faith and faith alone. But James questioned his readers. And listen to this question. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That's what he's saying. He's questioning the individual who says they believe in Jesus Christ, but there's no outward evidence to convict them of that charge. There's nothing in their life that would demonstrate that they truly are following Jesus. So you have both. You have those who follow, but don't believe. You have those who believe, but do not follow. We need a combination of both to settle this perfectly. Only one who truly believes and has been radically changed by Jesus Christ will be able to receive this invitation and to accept it. Why? Because as we discover, one of the chief elements to this invitation is the sacrificial attitude of your own personal heart towards God. Paul said it this way, that we would become living sacrifices before the Lord which is only our reasonable response in the light of all that he has done for us. Only one who is truly saved would be willing to go to that extent. Only one who has been radically changed would understand and know that everything here in this world is temporal, right? This is not our home. Heaven is. And therefore, if I have my eyes on eternity, if I'm living for eternity, if I'm trying to store for myself treasures in heaven to allow my heart to be there also, 
I must have been radically changed because everything in my self-preservation, in my personal nature, would say to me, do just the opposite. Right here, right now, live for the moment. This is your home, etc. But the attitude of those who followed Jesus Christ, they were radically changed as the disciples watched Jesus day in and day out. And they saw what he did and they were perplexed by what he said. And even though they didn't get it all, even up until the time of the cross, after Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit came upon them, they changed the world. The world was turned upside down by these simple, ordinary people who had accepted the invitation from an extraordinary man to follow me. It is only one who believes and follows that will be able to accept this invitation. Second question I have for you then. Who is leading who in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Who is leading who in their relationship with Jesus Christ? Did Jesus call us or did we call Jesus? Do you realize that everything that we do should be a response to what he has already done for us? God is always the initiator in our relationship with Him. It is Him who has initiated from the beginning. It is Him that is the author and the finisher of our faith. It is Him who has started a good work in you and will be faithful to complete it. Now often when I ask people, how do you know that you're a Christian? If I'm out and I'm with friends or we're at Starbucks and I hear people talking about the Bible, I'm telling you, Starbucks is becoming Bible study central out by me. Everybody has a Bible in Starbucks. I love it. It's great. And you start talking with them and you start asking them, well, how do you know that you're a Christian? And you usually hear something like this, uh, because I decided to trust in Jesus. Or because I asked Jesus to save me however many years ago. Because I have given my life to Jesus. And I don't want to become uh, a word police here. I don't want to be, you know, to quibble over semantics. But do you notice that in each one of those phrases, it starts, because I. And often when we feel that we are the initiator of this relationship, we often fool ourselves to think then we can negotiate and create a relationship with a God that we want to embrace rather than embracing the God who is truly there. Understand what I'm saying. That from every point of our relationship with God, God initiated. Your salvation, Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When it comes to your service, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Even the love that you have for God has been established by his initiation towards you. As John wrote in 1 John, 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Who's the initiator here? If God is the initiator, then it must be on his terms that we follow him, right? Not on our terms. And it's, must, it's imperative that we understand that because we're not going to understand any of the statements 
after this point in our series if we don't understand this first point fundamentally. He is the initiator. It is him who came and to save us. As one wrote, no one has ever been saved from their sins because they have pursued Jesus. Everyone who has ever been saved from their sin knows that they have been pursued by Jesus and their lives haven't been the same yet. So we must believe and we must follow. We must understand that He is our Lord and we are His servant. People love the idea of having their fire insurance from hell. They love the idea that he's Savior. But when you ask them about his lordship of their lives, then they don't become as enthusiastic. The call of a Christian is found in the two words, follow me. The will of God for your life begins with these words two words and it is from the very beginning of your relationship with him those who are searching for the will of god should first and foremost look to the word of god to discover and to find what god's will is for their life and begin by doing what the word says to do if the word says to do something do it that's god's will If the word says not to do it, then don't do it. That's God's will. If it isn't specified in the word of God, then I would simply ask you to wait on God in prayer and seek him diligently. But I am a firm believer that the will of God for the individual is not something that we need to pursue like Indiana Jones pursued the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, Half of you haven't seen that movie. Um, Let's try something new. I believe that Paul had it right when he said, lay yourself down as a living sacrifice before the Lord, and with that hard attitude, the will of God will find you. Lord, take me, use me for your glory. Do with me as you see fit. Lead me and guide me for where you'd have me to go. It is in that type of hard attitude that God can then move as he desires to move in and through your life. However, though, some today believe that Jesus is simply here to help them obtain what they want. I believe that they would be fully comfortable with Jesus' prayer in the garden being reworded to say, My will be done, not yours, Lord. And as long as we have that mindset we are not going to be able to understand what Jesus intended when he invited us to follow him. Augustine once said, Christ's servants are those who look out for his things rather for their own. Let him follow me means let him walk in my ways and not in his own as it is written elsewhere in the scriptures. You are only going to do what you truly believe. I say this because the Bible tells us that our actions are led by what we think. So if we truly believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and that we understand what he did for us there on the cross in his pursuit of us, 
If we understand that our sins had been dealt with in such a formidable way, we are then going to live accordingly. But one who hasn't truly grasped who Christ is and what he has done for you and I, when they read the follow me statements, they are going to recoil in their heart thinking, that is too radical for me. The reason I say that is many proclaiming Christianity today no longer believe in the simple fundamental pillars of the Christian faith. David Platt recorded in his book, According to research, many Christians no longer believe that God is the supreme creator and ruler of the universe. Such Christians believe that everyone is God, or maybe God is simply the realization of one's human potential. Over half of Christians, in quotes, don't believe that the Holy Spirit or Satan is real. And tens of millions of them don't believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Finally, almost half of Christians don't believe the Bible is completely true. If that's the case, if this is indicative of the thoughts of many who claim Christianity, they are not going to be interested in the least in following after him in the prescribed manner in which he is declared in his word. It's only when you truly, fully understand who Christ is. It's only when you truly understand what Christ has done for you. It's only when you truly understand the love of God that is so incredibly displayed for us in the giving of the Son on the cross for the sins of the world. It is only then that we will then heed the invitation to follow Him. I love what he went on to say. When we realize that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative and invites us to follow him, everything changes. Our souls are struck by the greatness of the one who has called us, and we are overwhelmed by the magnitude of the words, follow me, because we are awed by the majesty of the me who is saying them. That's what we're going to do over the next several weeks. Now that we have considered the cost of discipleship, that we've set the bar up here, we are now going to look at the follow me statements. And we are going to explore each and every one of them. As we look to Jesus, we are not going to take the uh, advice of the world that says, do what I say and not what I do, right? How many have been parented that way? I love it. I love when I'm in a restaurant and a little kid starts mouthing off to his parents and then uses a bad word. And then the parent looks at the kid and says, why did you use such a beeping bad word? Guess where he got it from, dad? Whoops. Do what I say, not what I do. Jesus says, do what I say and do what I did. That's what Christ has said for me. Now, you think, well, maybe we are just being too specific to the ministry of Jesus to understand our relationship with him in such a manner. But do you understand this was the common thinking of those who followed after him? In fact, in Paul's writing alone, he made a statement in 1 Corinthians 11.1 that is directly related to this follow me, doing what I say, doing what I do. 
He said, be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ. That was Christianity. And as we explore these follow me statements, we are going to discover the call of a Christian within them. We are going to discover the will of, the will of God for the believer in Jesus Christ. And we are going to see within them the breadth, the depth, the length that Christ has gone to save you and I from the sin that just overwhelmed us, crippled us, and allowed death to reign within us. We're free from that in Christ. I want to close with these words. With these two simple words, follow me. Jesus made clear that his primary purpose was not to instruct his disciples in a prescribed religion. His primary purpose was to invite his disciples into a personal relationship with him. He was not saying, go this way and find truth and life. Instead, he was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The call of Jesus was, come to me, find rest for your souls in me, find joy in your heart from me, find meaning in your life through me. And all of that is encapsulated in those two words of invitation. Simple, common words proceeding from the mouth of the most extraordinary individual who ever lived and offered to you and I. It is these words that we are going to discover for ourselves and the richness of them as we continue this series together on Sunday mornings. Follow me, the call of a Christian.